0: Right, everybody. Hey, um, I don't know if you notice this or not. I think it's kind of hard not to, but it it would seem as though as we are that we are uh, as as kind of people as a society an increasingly offended society. We are like a, a, P, a group of people that are increasingly kind of bothered or offended or triggered or whatever word you want to use. That sense of. <gasps> I can't believe you would do that or say that. It just seems like more and more, that, that's just our posture, that's like our, our default. And I say we very intentionally, because this is not like, you know, those people over there, they're the ones that are offended. No, we, we all are, because it's just kind of, it's in the water, it's in the air, it just kind of infects all of us to where we are just very, very easily just like, how, how, how dare you say that, how dare you think that, where... Uh, It kind of seems like one of the worst things in many people's minds, the worst thing that can happen to you is to be offended, or the worst thing that somebody can do to you is to offend you, or to to challenge what you believe, or how you think, or the way that you view the world, we're just like, that is just like one of the cardinal sins of our culture, like how dare you uh, offend me. And so what we do in response to that, it seems like, uh, is when we're offended now, our response is, just, I just need to cut that thing out of my life. If I'm offended, or I'm bothered, or I'm challenged in an area, well, then I will just dismiss or cut that, that belief, or that thought, or that philosophy, or that worldview, or that person out of my life. You've bothered me, you're dead to me, right? Because I think we've bought into this lie uh, that uh, being offended... And living what I'm going to call like the good life. And different people have different definitions for that. Whatever that is, to, to, to truly live, to be alive, to have contentment and joy and happiness and peace and fulfillment. If you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus, we would talk about having eternal life, like life abundantly. This satisfaction of the soul that Jesus offers, like the good life. We've kind of culturally bought into this lie that to live the good life and to be offended, those two things are like diametrically opposed. You can't do both. And so for me to have the good life, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be content, to all those things, I must eliminate anything that challenges what I think or how I feel or, or, or what I believe. That those things cannot, the good life and offense cannot exist together, but the passage of scripture we're going to look at today challenges that. We're going to see that, that being offended and, and living that kind of good life or having that eternal life are not mutually exclusive. In fact... Oftentimes, the thing that bothers us or the thing that offends us turns out to be the very thing that leads us into the life that we want. Like the thing that challenges us or we find difficult or is uncomfortable, it's on the other side of that thing that we go, oh, this is actually what I was looking for. And so that's where we're going to go today. We are going to cover a whole bunch of ground, so we're going to go through some stuff kind of quickly, um, but I want to land on one really big idea at the end. Um, we've been going like verse by verse through the Gospel of John. Today, I'm going to do a little bit of paraphrasing and some summer, summarization of some of the passages, because Jesus actually does repeat himself a lot. And again, there's a ton of ground to cover, and unless you guys want to be here till like one or two o'clock this afternoon. I mean, anybody want to be here that late? Don't raise your hand, because I don't. Okay, no, just, but but I'm going to paraphrase, and we're going to land on this big idea. So here's where we've been. We've been in John chapter 6, as we've been kind of going through the gospel of John throughout this year. Um, We're going to take a little break starting next week and do something different, but we'll come back to it later in the year again. Um, We've been in John 6 over the past couple of weeks. We're going to wrap that up today, but to get us all on the same page, because if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we're jumping into Jesus mid-conversation. And even if you have been here the last couple of weeks or you've watched online, whenever we kind of break things up week by week, it it can seem like the things that we're looking at happened a long time apart. But this is all one continued conversation that Jesus has been having. What what we've been looking at in this, like kind of this mini-series of the series, the last three weeks, is all taking place in the ministry of Jesus over the course of about a day. And so let's do a little recap and then we'll jump into today's text. John 6 opens up with probably one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, one of the most important miracles of Jesus. Uh, And the reason we say that is because every gospel writer includes this this particular miracle. And so the early church thought it was really valuable. Uh, The disciples, the apostles were like, people need to know about this, it's what's known as the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, so probably somewhere between 15 to 25,000 men, women, and children. They're out in the wilderness, they're in the desert, they're with Jesus, and they're like, we're hungry. And Jesus does this miraculous feeding. He provides bread in the wilderness for thousands of people. And the, the backdrop to that, John gives us this detail. He says it's the Passover. And for us, we kind of brush right past that, but the idea that it's the Passover sets up the the, the meaning of the passage because to Jesus, who was a first century Jewish person, to everybody who he was feeding was first century Jewish people, to John who's writing this was a first century Jewish person, Passover was loaded with all these different ideas. Passover was like the, the identity formation event for the people of Israel. Passover was the yearly celebration when they remembered how God rescued them out of slavery uh, in Egypt. He, he redeemed them. He rescued them, brought them out of slavery and oppression, took them through the wilderness for 40 years into the promised land. But as they come out into the wilderness, God provides manna, bread in the desert every day to feed them. And so it sets up to where like, well, now here's Jesus providing bread in the desert to all these people. And so light bulbs start going off for them. Like, well, this is the guy we've been waiting for. This is the prophet. This is the new Moses. This is our king. This is the one. And they are excited. And so Jesus does this miracle, and then he's like, peace, I'm out of here. Like, he goes across this lake to the other side of the lake. And the next day, the people wake up, and I, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but you eat one day, and you get up the next day, and what are you? hungry, right? Like some of you in the morning are hangry, right? It's like, I need, don't talk to me till I eat. If you're me, don't talk to me till I've had at least two cups of coffee, okay? At least two cups of coffee, right? So they wake up and they're like, we're hungry again. And they go find Jesus and they're like, hey, we're hungry. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach them something. And he says, listen, don't, don't go looking for or working for these kind of temporal things, but eternal things. There's a, a spiritual hunger that we have. There's these things of the soul. There's this, these things of eternity that we, we long for. And so often we try to satisfy that longing with kind of temporal, worldly things. And we're still like, why am I still hungry? Why am I still hungry? So Jesus tells them, he, he compares it to food. He says, you don't work for the food that spoils, but that which leads to eternal life. And he goes on to say, I am that food. I am the bread of life. And at that point is kind of where we pick things up. This crowd becomes massively offended by the statement that he makes. And they start complaining. They start grumbling. They're like, how can you claim to be the bread of life who's come down from heaven? We know you. We know your parents. Like, you know, you're Mary and Joseph's boy. You're the carpenter's son. You're from that hole-in-the-wall town Nazareth. Like, nothing good comes from there. Like, we know who you are. How can you be making these claims about yourself? And so he begins to just kind of not really explain himself, just really repeat himself. He's like, nope, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life, and here's what that means. I'm the bread of life. Here's what that means, and so that's where we're going to pick things up with all that backstory. Um, John six, starting in verse forty-eight, Jesus tells this crowd, "I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. So this is going to set up everything he's about to say. He's like, you guys keep telling me like our ancestors had manna. Our ancestors had manna. They had the bread. They had the bread. And he's like, yes, this is true. They did, but are any of them around right now? Like, no, no, they, they died." See, the, the thing that the manna was actually like preventing temporarily was their death. They went out into the wilderness and they start complaining to God. They're like, you brought us out here to, 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 for, to die. We were better off as slaves. At least we had something to eat there. And so God's like, here you go, manna, every single day. Every day I'll provide this food so that every day that kind of threat of death by starvation at least was pushed off further and further and further. And Jesus is like, yeah, you had that. But guess what? The thing that the manna was preventing, you you know, kind of dying, They still died. Your ancestors are no longer with us. He starts to get at the heart for them and for us this kind of fundamental human problem. The fact that we as human beings, we're mortal. We are vulnerable. We are fragile. We are all going to die. Welcome to church, everyone. It's happy. <laughs> right? But, like, this is just the reality. It's like, hey, this is, your ancestors have died. Every human being, like, this is the problem that we have, the way that Scripture talks about it. He says, you're, you, we're like dust creatures. You're made from the dust. And, and when, in the early chapters of Scripture, they talk about that, that's not like God playing in a sandbox. Like, look, people, it's this idea of dust is, is it's, it's mortality. It's just stuff. And later, authors pick up on that and say, yeah, from dust you came, and to dust you're going to return. Like, you, you are a mortal being, and sometimes, especially I feel like as modern people, because we've, uh, you know, we've gotten comfortable and we've made some, we've made some uh, advancements and, and things. And so we try to put off thinking about that or avoid thinking about that. But at the end of the day, that's the thing that stares at us is our own mortality. That's actually the, that's the, like the most primitive base level human fear. It's that fear of death. That really becomes the thing that sits underneath of most of the decisions that we make and advancements that we make. Think about everything that, that humanity has done in our history and advancements in uh, medicine and science and technology and, and economic policy and, and, and political things. Like all of it sits over top of this fear of how do we not die? How can we eradicate disease? How can we have better treatments? How can we make sure that we have the policies where people can eat and be taken care of? How can we make sure that we don't go to war with nations? And if we do, how can we make sure that we win? Why? Because we're like, well, we're, we're going to die if we don't. But all of those things, I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, those are good, we should, you know, we should try to strive for long life and people should be healthy, but it's very much like the manna in the wilderness. It kind of just puts off the inevitable. And Jesus is like, they had manna in the wilderness, we have all of our things, but they, your ancestors, they died. And as he talks to this crowd, as he talks to us, you're going to die, every human's going to die unless, because you're mortal, you don't have it within yourself unless something outside of you acts on your behalf. Unless something outside of you gives you a gift, something to take away this problem. And I'm the bread of life, he says. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I've got, I've got a different kind of, of bread that I'm offering you here. It's different than the manna. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live Forever. He's just getting at this idea over and over. I'm the the bread of life. Eat of me, you won't die. Eat of me, you won't die. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And the bread, he's like, let me get more specific and tell you exactly what this bread is. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. The thing that will allow you to not die is my flesh. He says there's something about what I'm going to do. First of all, I like just don't lose sight of this. I'm gonna give it. Like I'm gonna give you something. It's a gift. You got to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You can't. You can't demand it from me. You can't take it from me. Jesus says, "I've got bread of life, and I come to you with it, like with this posture." Here you go. Do you want it? I've got enough for all of you. I've got enough for everyone. I've got the bread of life that's for life. And notice who it's for. It's for the world. This is the, this is the other thing that really sets this bread apart from the manna. The manna in Israel's history, it was for a specific group of people at a specific time. It was only for Israel in the wilderness. And he's like, "Oh, I've got something better than that. I've got something that is for everyone." That everyone can have this bread. And he says, that he, he starts pointing to the fact that this is kind of like a metaphor, right? This whole bread thing. He says, that the bread is actually my flesh. The bread is my flesh. And he begins to kind of foreshadow. And he begins to point to what he's ultimately here to do. That he's, he's got his eyes set towards the cross. He's like, I'm, I'm here to give you life. But for me to give you life, I actually have to give myself. And I don't want that to be lost on us because, like, as people who are kind of modern people and, and maybe are somewhat familiar with the Christian story on different levels, we're just like, well, yeah, of course, duh. Jesus, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus went to the cross. But when Jesus said this, this was they had this was like, what? We have, they don't have a precursor for this. They don't have the prior knowledge. They don't have, like, of course we know this story. They're like, what? In, in that time, in that culture, that, that a God would die for people was unheard of. This is why the Apostle Paul comes along later and he says the cross, it, it's, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jewish people because gods don't die for people. Gods demand that people serve them. Gods, gods demand that you sacrifice for them. Gods don't love people, but here comes this God who says, yes, I'm here to give you myself, to give you my flesh. I've come to serve, not to be served. It's this radical thing about the message of, of Christianity. Christianity. And John, as he does in his gospel, he'll begin to introduce things and he'll keep calling back to them over and over. And so the idea of, of flesh right here, he sets that up all the way at the beginning of his gospel. He, he sets up this big picture and is like, he talks about God being like the Word. He's like, in the beginning was the Word. And then he says, and the Word became flesh. And now we see why the Word becomes flesh. The Word became flesh, it became vulnerable, he became killable, he became breakable. Jesus says, I, I became flesh so that I could give my flesh. He's pointing to the reality of, of his sacrifice, his, the reality of his love displayed on the cross. But they don't quite understand that. The crowd there, the Jews, begin to argue among themselves, asking, how, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Like, they're, they're confused, right? They're like, what, what are you like? Jesus is like, come on. Like, like, They're not like thinking. They're like, come on over here, have a bite, you know. Like, we don't get it. We don't get it. We're, we're confused. And they're thinking like physical, physical, physical. Like, like they're thinking actual food. And again, this is something that, that John sets up and comes back to in his gospel. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus, and he's like, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus' mind is stuck on physical birth, and Jesus is like, It's a spiritual thing. And then in John chapter 4, there's a woman at a well, and he's like, I'm going to give you living water. She's like, Well, that'd be great so I don't have to keep filling up my bucket. And he's like, no, it's not physical water. It's a spiritual thing. And now he's here again. And they're like, what? Do you want us to like gnaw on your arm because it's bread? And he's like, guys, it's not, I'm not being literal. Like it's a, it's a spiritual thing. But what's interesting is, is that even though they're very confused and they're, they're off base, Jesus doesn't try to clear it up. He's not like, okay, like time out. Let me try to explain this to you and we'll work through this. And there's a, there's a specific reason why he doesn't. And we're going to kind of touch on that here in a few minutes. But he doesn't clear it up. In fact, he he actually, he just doubles down. He gets even crazier with what he says. He says this. He's like, oh, yeah, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. The Son of Man is like his favorite title that he uses for himself. He's like, yeah, so if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have life And again, not physical life, because they're they're there in front of him. They're alive. They're breathing. They're standing in front of him. He knows that they're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. He's like, yeah, you guys guys have physical life, but you don't have that kind of eternal life. You're like walking corpses. You're dead unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. For the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, and here's the thing that we want, right, has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day anytime this concept of eternal life gets brought up, I, I, I like to pause and talk about it for a minute, and you, maybe you're tired of hearing of it, I, I don't care, we're gonna keep doing it, because like, I don't want this to be lost on us. I don't, I don't want us ever, like, as a church, I- embrace kind of the pop culture Christianity version of eternal life, which is simply, hey, when you die, you're gonna go to like, the heaven, which we think of like angels and clouds and harps and chubby babies, right? It's like, like that, get that idea out of your mind, that's not eternal life. Eternal life stems all the way back to God's original creation. He makes people, and they are in relationship with him. They are in his presence, and he is the source of all good, of all beauty, of all love. Every good thing comes from him, and so they're living in the presence of God and all of the blessings that flow out of him, right? Like, he's like, that's what I intended for humanity. And then sin and death come into the world and just rip that away. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm here to restore that. Like eternal life i'm here to give you the way jesus talks about it later in the gospel of john it's life abundantly it's life to the fullest it's this life that bubbles up and spills out of you the life that is truly life and he, another place he said here's what eternal life is it's that you know me and you know the father that eternal life is life in, in the power in the presence of god and it's kind of twofold look at what he says he says if you eat my flesh and drink my blood that person has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Eternal life is a present reality and a future one. If if your faith is in Jesus, that life that he wants to give you, it happens instantly, man. It's like right now in this life, and it will continue on into eternity. It's like, I'm, I'm here to give you that. I'm here to solve the sin and death issue that has ripped that life away from you. You eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he's like, well, how, how does this work? What, what does that have to do with eternal life? And he gives us the reasoning. He says, because my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, and the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. So again, this is a continued conversation. We looked at last week. He was like, hey, don't work for food that spoils things that don't last. And he's like, it's kind of a fake food. It's a, it's a, it's a fake satisfaction. And it's a, it's, a, it's a false way of trying to find eternal life when we look for it in politics and power and sex and identity and family and work. And wherever we go to look for like, true life and anything that's other than Jesus, he's like, no, I want to give you the real thing. I, I'm the real deal. I want to give you the true food that satisfies. And whenever you eat that, I remain in you. Because this is the way that physical food works. You eat something, and that something that you eat becomes a part of you. Our body breaks that down. It gives us energy, and it actually allows, like, our cells to reproduce. Like, we're constantly reproducing cells, hair cells, skin cells, blood cells. Our whole body is constantly reproducing. And it actually takes, like, what we ate to, like, make that. It's crazy. Like, nuts. It, it, but it becomes, like, a, a part of you that doesn't, it's, it's not distinguishable from who you are. And Jesus says, when you feed on me... The same thing happens on a spiritual sense, that my life is in you, that we we are united together, and here's why we have eternal life when he remains in us, because Jesus is the one who on the cross defeated the power of sin. We didn't do that. Jesus is the one when he rose from the grave. He's the only one who's ever defeated death. We didn't do that. We can't do that, but when he's in us, his life becomes ours. And so like our, our, our victory, our, our power over sin and death, that's not ours, it's his, but he's within us. And so he says, like, so if you, if you are feasting on me, if I'm within you, you, you've got my victory over sin and death. This is beautiful reality. It's hard to even get your mind around that, 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 that level of, of unity that, that Jesus invites us into with him. So you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. And again, he's not being literal. Um, hopefully, we're, we're able to kind of catch on to that a little bit, that he's not being literal, because if he were, church would be weird, okay? Like, it'd be, I'm just, I don't know what we would do, but it's like, I don't know if it'd be that, 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 that fun. Um, but he, he's actually, and listen, there's been debate over this kind of passage, this whole, whole section of John 6 for the, the entire history of the church, like, how do we interpret this? What does this mean? There's been confusion around it. I mean, like, people from the outside of Christianity in the early, like, first several centuries were like, Christians are cannibals, Because of, like, this text, they're like, like, no, guys, we don't actually eat people, okay? Um, Some people have, have taken this to be talking about communion. It's not actually talking about communion. When we look at the context of this, Jesus already set up what he means. A few verses earlier in verse 35, he says, No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And so he ties coming to him to having your hunger satisfied. He ties believing in him to having your thirst quenched. And so he set this up, and so when he says, hey, come to me, when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's saying, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come to me, and I want you to trust in me, to come and to believe. This is what it looks like to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Believe in me, trust in me, lean the weight of your life and all that you are on all that I am. Come and believe in me, and I will become a part of you, and I will satisfy you, and you will have eternal life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. As you might imagine, this doesn't go over so well <laughs> with the crowd. They're like, what? It's not making sense. And so therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, all right, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? This is, this is tough. This is difficult. And again, Jesus doesn't go, oh, okay, you know what, you're right. Let me, let me kind of back off that a little bit. He, just, he, he knows in himself that they're, they're grumbling, and so, and so he asks them, does this offend you? There's our word. There's our cultural moment. Does this bother you? Does this kind of, do you find this difficult? Are you offended? The, 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 the Greek word for offend is scandalizo. It's where we get the word scandal or scandalous. Does this create a scandal within your spirit? Are you like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm getting tripped up. I don't know if I can accept that. Like he's like, oh, like this is, this is an issue. This is creating a crisis within me. I'm offended by this. Does it offend you? Does it offend you in... The answer is yes, it does. It, it offends his original audience, and honestly, it, it kind of offends us as well. It offends them in some unique ways, but there's some shared ways in which it offends them and it offends us. To the original audience that Jesus is talking to, this, the immediate context is super offensive because cannibalism is just like, like, no. But also, like, the Jewish dietary law and what they were and weren't allowed to eat, for Jesus to say this to a group of, of Jewish people is like, you, you've got to be kidding. Like, you can't be serious. Like they weren't to eat anything that had the blood in it, because uh, the blood was like the life of an animal. It's like no, we, no blood. We don't do blood. We don't do blood. And Jesus is like fill up your cup. Let's go. And they're like, what? You got to be kidding me. And so they're 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 majorly offended. But what I what I don't want us to miss because sometimes people can kind of take this passage and this teaching out of context and just be like, see, Jesus is offensive. We should offend people. It's like that's not really what he's doing. He's not being intentionally offensive. He wants to be intentionally offensive to that audience and not because he doesn't love them not because he doesn't care about them but again because his eyes are set to the cross and he knows that they will not crucify a rabbi a teacher that has a crowd and a following of thousands they would not be able to the the the, the religious leaders would not be able to incite the crowds and hand him over to rome and crucify him if he had this massive following And at the beginning of this chapter, when he feeds everyone, there's 15, 20,000 people that are like, yay, Jesus, he's our man. He can't do it. No one can. Like, everyone loves Jesus at this point. And he's like, that's not going to work. By the end of the chapter, everyone walks away because he knows what he's there to do. He's on his way to the cross because he doesn't just have the immediate, you know, following and the immediate what I want these people, what these people want for me in his mind. He has like, what I'm doing for the whole world for all of time is in his mind. and He's got to get to the cross. And so this is why, through this passage, he's like, I'm not going to explain it. I'm not going to clear it up for you because I kind of need you to leave me. If you kind of read through the Gospels, you'll see this as Jesus teaches. And usually his teaching just goes over people's head. They're just like, what? The only people he ever will explain himself to are the 12 disciples. He'll pull them aside and say, here's what that parable meant. And the reason for that, he says, so they'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. They'll be ever hearing but never understanding. Because I need my people to reject me so that I can go to the cross. And so he's offensive to them with this goal in mind of like, I've, I've got to give my life. I have to give my flesh for the life of the world. It's offensive because of their religious background. It's also offensive in terms of the exclusivity of this claim. He's telling a group of Jewish people like, okay, I am the only one. By coming to me and believing me is the only way that you can have life. Not by, you know, doing the temple sacrifices or following the law or any of that that the Jewish people had in their minds. like, nope, it's not that, it's me. And that idea that was offensive to them is equally offensive to our world today. Like that, that, that idea of the Jesus claim of like, you do not have life unless you come to me and believe in me. You don't have life. And, and for those of us, which is all of us, by the way, that kind of live in a, modern western society and i say specifically western specifically america because in other places of the world this doesn't bother people as much we just assume that everybody thinks like us but this kind of bothers our modern sensibilities because we we kind of bought into this idea of like no everything's true and all roads lead to god and all roads you know lead to, to heaven and every you know everything kind of basically it's just we're all on different paths that eventually converge together and I understand where it partially comes from because there was like a, like the idea of pluralism, like cultural pluralism is a beautiful thing that the people of different races and ethnicities and cultures and that they can come together and bring like their their music and their art art and their tradition and the way they see family and and like they bring all that to the table and there's this beautiful mosaic of humanity it's actually a reflection of the image of god it's actually something that the church should fight for this beautiful gospel picture because we see like in the new age that every tribe and tongue and nation is worshiping jesus cultural pl- like pluralism is beautiful But the danger is then we kind of morph it into a pluralism of, like, greater truths in terms of things like faith and religion and ethics and philosophy and God and salvation, the idea that all beliefs are equally true. They're all equally right at the same time. And so if you believe in Jesus, that's fine that that works for you. But that's no more true or right or better than anyone else's belief. And Jesus has just said, actually, there's only life in me. I'm making the claim that I'm unique, and that offends us, and I don't even want to clear up that offense. I'm just kind of like, okay, well, just let, it, let that sit with us. Like, let's just say, like, okay, well, I feel this way. Why do I feel this way? And like, what should I do about it? I'm at this crossroads where something bothers me. Do I reject it because it bothers me? Do I automatically have to say, nope, I can't do that, or is there a different way forward? Is there a different way forward? And then, then he says this. He says, uh, what if, He's like, does this offend you, right? What if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? This uh, Son of Man, it's the the phrase that Jesus uses most often for himself. It's this Old Testament term that comes out of uh, Daniel chapter 7. Um, And in Daniel chapter 7, there's... Uh, th- this vision that Daniel has and he sees the throne room of God and sitting on the throne is, is the one called the Ancient of Days. That's just the Most High God. That's Yahweh. And he sees the Ancient of Days and he says, there's one like the Son of Man who I saw like rising up to, to this throne room of God. And Son of Man, literally the phrase just means human one. Like, there's, so there's someone that looks like a human who is like, going up into god's presence and when the son of man gets there the ancient of days most high god looks at the son of man and gives him all authority all glory all power and that all people worship him and bow down for him and he has a kingdom and a dominion and a rule that lasts for an eternity and so it's this picture of of like king jesus of like everyone's going to worship me that i am over all i am above all And and so as Jesus is like, oh, does this offend you, what I said about eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, what if you were to see me ascending? In other words, what if you were to see me for who I really am? Kind of like, hey, does this offend you in in a nice way? Does this offend you? Yeah, well, it doesn't really matter because I am who I am whether I bother you or not. And the idea too to get behind our heads, like let's not like power hungry Jesus, like you just listen to me, because who is this son of man that has all power, who has all authority, that'll be worshipped forever? He says, Well, this is the same son of man who is going to give his flesh and blood for you. This this all glory, power, honor, and worship for eternity is the same one who said, I will humble myself, I will come to the earth, I will go to a cross because I love you. That son of man that has all power is the same son of man who says you are worth dying for. Even though he kind of explains that and talks about this a little bit, they, they, they still, they're like, we, we, we've, we've had enough. And so from that moment on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him, no longer followed him. This idea that, like, again, you picture like this mass exodus of people. There were thousands of people there at this moment. And they come to this realization of being like, hey, if that's what following Jesus is about, if that's what it's going to cost me, I'm out you think about what they just experienced like bona fide miracle thousands of people fed they're like well it doesn't matter what we've seen it doesn't matter what we've experienced it doesn't it doesn't matter what jesus claimed about himself or the evidence that backed it up jesus you just bother us too much can't follow you anymore and as everyone is walking away jesus turns to the, the people that are closest to him the 12 disciples the guys that, man, they've been following him. They're, they're with him like 24-7. They eat together. They walk together. They laugh together. They cry together. I mean, these are, these are his close like the people who are closest to him on planet Earth. And he turns to them and he says, you don't want to go away too, do you? Hey, guys, you're my guys. You know, we've been through thick and thin. We've been through so much together. Everybody's leaving me. You want to go with them? You want to go with them? And I just kind of want to land... The message this morning with the way that the disciples respond Peter speaks up kind of as the spokesperson for the group and in what he says I think there's a lot of wisdom for us there's encouragement there's hope whether you're someone that you're you're a Christian a follower of Jesus or maybe you're still exploring you got questions maybe you're like I was and I'm kind of on my way out the door I don't even know why I'm here or why I'm watching I just want I want I want us to hear the response of the disciples when Jesus asked do you want to leave Peter answered Lord to whom will we go where are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. You've got the thing that we've been looking for. We've come to know and to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, to whom shall we go? you got eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. That's a this Jewish messianic title that Jews would use for the Messiah. Like, hey, you're the Messiah. You're the King. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that's going to set everything right. You're the one that's going to fix everything. You have... The words of, of, of eternal life, so where else are we going to go? I, the thing that I love the most about, about Peter's response isn't necessarily what he says, it's what he doesn't say. You know, Jesus asks, Hey, do you guys want to leave? He's not like, Nope, we're with you, we got it, we're sticking with you to the end. Jesus, no, everybody else was offended, we're not offended, we're not bothered we're not having a hard time with what you said like everybody else. Like, he doesn't say, no, we, like, none of that bothered us or the whole eat my flesh and drink my blood. We're like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. Like, he doesn't, he just says, well, who else, who else are we going to go? So he kind of ignores the, the question. And in, in that kind of ignoring of the question, not answering the question, there's an admission of, you know what, actually, we do want to go. What you said is hard. And we don't get it. And it bothers us. And just like the rest of this crowd, we were offended and we don't know what to do with it. And we don't know how to make sense of it. But where else are we going to go? And I love that response because for those of us today, again, we're, whether you're a Christian, whether you're wrestling with faith, you're questioning with things, like, it gives us that same permission. To go, yeah, this is hard and I don't get it. I may not always agree with it. It may create, a, like, a, a, a crisis within me. It may offend me. But yet I can continue to press into that and not just outright say I'm done. As the disciples say, yeah, we're kind of bothered by this, but eternal life, that's the thing that we're after. That's the, that, that's the thing that we know we have this fundamental issue. Remember, our ancestors, they ate the manna in the desert and they died. Like, there's this infection of sin and death, and we, we need a solution to that, and we, we recognize that you have it. And you're the king. You're the king that we've been waiting for, that our generations of our people have been waiting for. And so we're going to hold intention. tension this idea that I'm bothered by this, and this is hard, and yet I'm still sticking with Jesus. The disciples, what they really wanted What they were looking for was eternal life And the thing that offended them Was Jesus saying, hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood But the thing that offended them Would ultimately be the thing that would give them eternal life The thing that bothered them The thing that created this crisis within them That forced them to confront this thing Like that ended up being the very thing That's like, that bothers us But that's actually the doorway to the life that we're looking for that's the thing that, that will satisfy. I love the kind of the reasoning or the, why he's able to, to say that they can do this. There's two parts. If you caught it, he said, we've come to, to believe and also to know. Like, there are these two different things. If you're a Christian or exploring faith that, that, that happen in, in, like, the life of, of faith and following Jesus. First, there's, like, belief, this idea of, like, trusting Like he's done something, and I trust who he is. I've had an experience. He's changed my life. He's done something. He's worked. He's moved. There's the work of the Holy Spirit, but then there's also just there's just a knowing. There's like a knowledge. It's like I see evidence. There's reason. There's logic. There's there's historical research I can do, and and these two things come together, and those those two things become a part of the journey of faith. And honestly, they kind of depend on who you are. They come in like different orders for different people. Some of you, if you're Christian, you was like I had an experience with Jesus first. And then I came to kind of know and to research and those things came together. Others of you, you're more rational. It's like, I kind of looked into it and I read stuff and then it was kind of in that like exploring of like Jesus, it was like, oh, he did something. But those two parts are there. There's a a, a knowledge and there's a trust. And those two things come together and like, hey, we we believe and we know. We've come to trust you and know who you are based on the evidence uh, for who you claimed to be. That it can bother us and I can still think it's true. This is kind of what what I want us to to take away, whether it's in terms of faith. Again, you're you're a Christian, you're living out your faith, you're having difficulty, or you're exploring faith. But also just in life in general, is that just because something bothers you doesn't mean it's not true. Just because something like confronts you and goes, oh, that hurts or that's hard or that's difficult, that doesn't mean it's like, well, it's automatically false. It doesn't mean it's automatically bad for you. It doesn't mean it's something that I have to like cast off and say, I don't believe this. I don't buy it. I got to get that person out of my life. I got to get that idea out of my life. I got to get that Jesus out of my life. Something can actually bother us and we can still embrace it and work through it and on the other side of that actually find life. It's the beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel because it's, it's good news it's news it's something that has happened that jesus of nazareth was a historical person that that lived that died that was crucified by rome under pontius pilate that he was seen by that he was risen from the grave and seen by many like something happened in history and if someone is able to predict and pull off their own death and resurrection it's like i'm with that guy Despite what I gotta figure out and the, the questions I might still have and the offense that I still have and the beautiful thing about the, the faith is it's a life, lifetime of working those things out. And so if Jesus is who he claims to be. If he's done what he's, he's claimed to do, if he's risen from the dead, if he's alive today, then I can embrace that and there's still room for difficulty and there's still room for disagreement and there's still room to be offended or bothered by things. There's still room to have questions and to ask those questions. There's still room to have doubts. There's room to be, to be hurt by other Christians because we're all a bunch of hypocrites. There's room to be hurt by the church and, and have bad experiences, but at the end of the day, say, but in spite of all of that, to whom shall I go? Because there's nobody else that offers life. There's nobody else that offers what Jesus is offering who's done what he's done for us. And so in spite of what may bother me from whether inside or outside the faith, what I want us to know is that we can believe in Jesus as our savior and we can follow him as our king because of what he's done because of what's happened let's pray god we thank you that you are the god who loves Um, man that that love that you have for us is not something that that we just it's not just a feeling it's not something that we're just it's not just pie in the sky but it is it is rooted in something that happened jesus that you walked this earth You live the perfect life. You died on a cross for our sins. You rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death forever. Jesus, we praise you that when we put our faith in you, your life is united to ours. We're forgiven of sin. The power of sin and death is broken on us. So God, I pray that in moments when that's hard and we don't understand it, whenever we're challenged by that, that we wouldn't lean away, but we would lean in. That we would learn to live in the tension of of being confronted with, with who you are, but also knowing that that it's true and that your love for us is true. I pray you'd strengthen those of us that are, are your followers to live in that resolve. I pray that you would reveal yourself to those that are asking questions, that are trying to figure things out. We ask this in Jesus' name.